If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the book of Exodus, and to catch you up where we've been, uh, what we've seen for the previous 18 chapters is God coming to the rescue of his people, his people crying out. They were in bondage and slavery in Egypt, crying out, God, come and rescue us, and he did, and he has. And he brings them out of Egypt and brings them through the Red Sea and then brings them through the wilderness. And now we've come to Sinai. Last week we said, as Exodus 19 begins, there's an emphatic reminder where we're at. Sinai, 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 Sinai. We are at the mountain of God. And last week what we talked about was this covenant. God rescued his people and then lays out the terms of the relationship. And that's what we're going to study for the next few chapters up to chapter 24, the terms of the relationship. I rescued you, Israel. Now respond to that extravagant grace. And then where we ended last week was Moses was told, prepare the people because I'm coming. I'm going to appear on the mountain before the people. And that's where we're at in the text in Exodus chapter 19. And the question that we left off with last week and we ought to be thinking this morning is, are you ready? Are you ready to stand before the infinite holy God in all of his awe and wonder and thunder and lightning that he's going to show up in in this text? And that's where we begin this morning. So essentially, that's where we've been, and that's, that's where we're at this morning, and now in these verses, God comes. He comes near, he comes down, he descends on the mountain, but we're going to see something that's interesting in the text. He only comes so far. He comes to the top of the mountain, and Israel is told to stand at the bottom of the mountain, and there's something significant that's repeated multiple times. There's a gap, there's a, there's a gulf, there's a division, there's a separation. There are limits to how far he comes down and how far the people can come up. And what we see in this text, where we'll end, is this text anticipates someone, someone to come. A mediator that will bridge the gap between God and man, who will allow us not to come only to the limits and not God to only come to the mountain, but for us to dwell together in the presence of the infinite holy God that we're going to read about in this text. And those are the three things we'll see this morning. God comes down, but he only comes so far, and this text anticipates the one who comes all the way down and all the way in to dwell the person of Jesus. So let's look at the text this morning in verses 8 and 9 where, where Marshall started for us. It anticipates what we're going to be seeing here. That the Lord promises, I'm coming. And he said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud and the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And then he comes in verse 16 and 17. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. A couple of observations from these few verses here that we see. The first, this is absolutely intended to validate Moses, the messenger, and the message that he's proclaiming. That's, that's made clear in verse 9, that he's coming so that the people hear me speak when I speak with you, Moses. 
and they may also believe you forever. So there's a validation that's, that's happening here. One of the reasons this is happening is to validate that Moses is not cuckoo, that Moses is not making all of this up, that Moses has not made up this message about the one true God, Yahweh, that Moses has not made up all of this. You would think they wouldn't need that validation. They just walked through the Red Sea. They saw Egypt conquered. They've been fed from, with manna and quail from heaven, but there's a, a reason here. This is pointing us forward to validating another messenger and another message to come. But what's happening in this point here in this, in this text is that Moses is being validated so that they believe him, so that they listen, so that they hear his words and obey. They're not his words. We're going to be told next week, chapter 20, and God spoke these words to the people, and the people listened to them as though they were God's words. But there is a messenger that's communicating them. And this sign, this wonder, this appearance is validating him. It also verifies the reality of God and his presence among the people. This text is so physical and tangible and visceral that they, they see the signs. There's a thick cloud that comes down. They hear the thunder of his presence, the thunder and the lightning. They hear it and they see it. And then there's a trumpet they hear also that's blasting the announcement that God has come near. But it's not just noise, and we need to understand that. This is the actual voice of God that is going to speak. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses recounts, You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. They are hearing in this moment what's to come in chapter 20, the commands. They're hearing the real, literal voice of God speak. I want you to, to, to hear Moses. I want you to listen to him. And I want you to listen to the words. These are my commandments and I want you to obey. What I love about this is they see it, they hear it, but they also feel his presence coming near. The text tells us in a number of different ways. It says in verse 18 that they, they trembled. Well, verse 17 says they, they, I'm sorry, verse 16 says they trembled. Verse 18 says the mountain trembled and shook. When God comes near, the entire earth shakes. They, they are shaking, and they feel the mountain shaking in this moment. The presence of God is in their midst. It's audible. It's visible. It's physical. There's no mistaking this moment. There's no misunderstanding who they're dealing with. There, there's no mistaking that this is the living God of the universe, the one that cast the stars into the sky and then named each one by name. The one that spoke and all creation came into being. The one that said, I will come and rescue you and squashed Egypt, the greatest military power at that time. The one that parted the Red Sea. The one that fed them with quail and manna. The one that gave them water from a rock. This is Yahweh. I am in their midst. And there's no mistaking it. There's no missing it. They see it. They hear it, they feel it, it's tangible, and it's so obvious, and it's so shockingly evident that the people shake, they begin to shake. Later in chapter 20, verse 18, we're going to be told they don't just shake, they flee, they run, they stand far away from this presence, that they can't, 
They can't even bear to come into his presence. They're told there are limits and they can't come further. We'll explore that. But they don't even want to go further. He's so awe-inspiring. His presence is so shocking in this moment. It's so shocking that later in, in chapter 20, verse 19, they will speak to Moses and they will say, don't ever let him speak to me again. I only want you, Moses, to speak to us. If we hear him again, we will die. They beg Moses and said, do not let God speak to us lest we die. Only let him speak to you, Moses. We need a mediator, Moses. We can't stand in his presence. We'll be crushed by his presence. The fire and the fury and the terror and the holiness will crush us. We can't do this, Moses. Please don't let him speak to us again. He's too infinite and holy and terrifying You stand in the gap, Moses. Stand between us and you and you alone speak to us. More than anything, it shows us that God is coming near. This is amazing. That God descends. That God condescends. That God has come near to his people. That he's not infinite and holy and other and and unwilling to come near, he comes near in this moment. We see his initiating grace. We've seen it all the way up to this chapter. And we also see his restraining grace in this moment. He doesn't smote them. (laughs) He doesn't smite them. He doesn't destroy them, squash them, step on them. He doesn't do that. He restrains his grace. He sets limits to how far they can come. And we'll, we'll explore this further. But why... Does God come near? Because he wants to be known. Because he wants to be known by them. He wants them to know him. He wants them to have a relationship with him. With him to know who he is and what he's like. To know his holiness and, his, and his, his fury and his terror. But also to know his grace. To know his intimacy. To know his relationship. And what does Moses do? We're told in verse 17. He brings them out to meet God, to introduce them to God. What a momentous occasion. What an extraordinary moment. What on earth is happening here? What are we seeing? We're seeing one of the hallmark distinctions of the Christian faith that distinguishes it from all other world religions. All other world religions said you've got to climb up the mountain to get to God. All other world religions said you've got to say you've got to earn his favor. You've got to, 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 to work your way into his presence and good graces. You've got to do more and you've got to try harder. But in this text, we see God coming down. And who does he come down to? He comes down to Jacob's, to swindlers, to unfaithful, inconsistent Israel. He descends, he condescends to be in relationship with them. This also dispels any doubt in their minds, any wonder. Does, does the infinite holy God care about us? Does he want a relationship with us? Look at the top of the mountain. Listen to your breathing right now. The fact that you are still breathing says he wants a relationship with you. Remember that he rescued you out of slavery. Remember the Red Sea. Remember the wilderness. Look now. He didn't come down in such crushing power that he destroyed you. He came down in terrifying power, but he restrained his holiness so that you could stand in his presence, Israel. 
This is amazing here. Does God want a relationship with them? Absolutely he does. They wouldn't be standing here if he didn't. They, they, didn't. they wouldn't have been rescued if he didn't. And here's what's amazing to us, for us. You and I have two tangible, visceral, physical reminders of this truth. That God has descended. That God has condescended. That God has lowered so that you can know him. First, you're holding one of those tangible reminders. Whether it's digital or physical, you are holding a tangible reminder that the infinite holy God wants a relationship with you. Why do we have the Bible in the first place? Because God is a revealing God that wants to be known. He, he revealed himself in the Word. He preserved the Word. And why? So that you would be able to understand and comprehend him, to be able to have a, a relationship with him. Are you taking advantage of this extraordinary grace that he's given you? Are you devouring this word that, that tells us about him, that tells us about his holiness, that tells us about his grace, and ultimately tells us about his desire for a relationship with us. We don't read the Bible to get up to God. God has come down to us in the Word so that we can know Him. This is beautiful. This, is, this changes why I read this. This changes the motivation to read it. It changes the desire to read it. It, it means I get to and I get to study Him and I get to know more about Him. And This changes everything. But ultimately, what do we have even more tangible than the Word? What do we have that's even more physical than the Word? We have the one, the person of the Word, the one the Word, the written Word, testifies about and tells us about from beginning to end. We have Jesus. And who is Jesus but God come down? God condescending, God descending, taking on human flesh, going to the cross and dying for you and I. We have Jesus. We have the cross. Does God want a relationship with you? Look at the cross. Remember its message. Remember his approval in the cross. Look at his desire for you to reconcile you to a holy God. That leads us to our second point. This is amazing that God condescends, but we have to be honest about this text. We have to be there's something else interesting here. There's something else that's obvious here. He doesn't come all the way. He doesn't come all the way down. He comes to the top of the mountain. And he sets limits to how far the people can come up. And we have to be honest and we have to understand what on earth is going on here. And what is this pointing us to? God came down, but he only comes so far. When it says here in the text that Moses brought them out in verse 17, he says he brought them out to meet God. Meet in this sense means he brought them into the vicinity of God. The, he, he brought them in proximity to God. But they didn't get full access to God. There's still limits to the relationship. There's still a gap between them and God. When it says he brought them out to meet, it's huge, it's significant, but it means to enter into the vicinity of God. 
And it says here that he descends to the top of the mountain and they took their place at the bottom of the mountain. They took their stand at the bottom. And he comes down to the top. So what's happening here? While God is at the top of the mountain and Israel is at the bottom, God has come down, but there's only so far he has come. And simultaneously, the people have come up, but there's only so far the people can come up. There's a huge gulf between the two. There's a massive divide between the two. The relationship is limited. It's hindered. There is something that's keeping them apart. They can only come so far. What's interesting is if we think about what we're seeing here, God is at the top of the mountain, the Holy of Holies. Moses and Aaron are going to be able to walk between these two. The priest, the, the mediators are going to be able to walk in this middle ground between the two. But the people are in at the foot of the mountain. They're in the Maybe what we would call, what we'll study later, is the outer courts. What we see here in this moment is a, is a visible picture of what the rest of Exodus is going to anticipate. God has come down. He's come down to dwell with his people, and he's come down to dwell in the holy of holies. But there's a, a court that only the mediator can come between. And then outside of that, there's the outer court where all the people must dwell. They can't come in. So what we're seeing here will, will be played out for the rest of Exodus, for the rest of the Old Testament. We will anticipate for, for years and years, what is this divide? How can we bridge this divide? It, it's creating a longing here. This is glorious. This is amazing. But the relationship is not complete. They're in proximity. They get his presence, but they don't get his face. What's going on here? Three times in the text, we're told that there are limits or barriers between the people and God. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 19, it says, And you, to Moses, God says to, to Moses, You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No handful, no, no hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And then in verse 21 and 22 of, of our text this morning, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish, die. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And then it's repeated a third time in verses 23 and 24. And Moses said to the Lord, The people can't come up to Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down. That's a double emphatic. It literally in the Hebrew reads, Go, go down. And come up, bringing with you Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. There's a divide. Why does it have to be repeated three times? I would think that don't cross the line or you'll die. I would think that would be enough. That would be enough for me. Why does it have to be repeated three times? There's something else that's being told here. We're being the emphasis on God's infinite holiness and man's infinite sinfulness, those two things are, are being communicated here. This divide is being heightened. The gulf 
is being highlighted. The distinction between God and man is being emphasized in this moment. We are supposed to hear that. We're supposed to pay attention to that. We're supposed to go, what? what's going on here? What? They get his presence, but they don't get his face. There's still limits to the relationship. All of it communicates that he's infinite holy and we are desperately sinful. Even though he's among them, there's still limits to how much they can experience him and still live. They get God, but not all that they could get or were created to get. There are limits to how much they can see and how close they can come. They get his presence, but they don't get his face. They experience him, but they don't get all of him. He absolutely desires a relationship with them. He rescued them for a relationship. He's brought them to this point to outline the terms of the relationship, but they can't experience the ultimate intimate union they were created to experience. Not yet. We have to remember this is just one point on the entire timeline of God's redemptive history. And his promise to send a redeemer in Genesis 3.15 is still on display here. And we are being, this longing is coming into all of our hearts as we read this text. It ought to come into our hearts. It's coming into their hearts. It will be anticipated for hundreds of years. The text, the narrative, God himself makes it clear they need something or someone to stand in the gap. To mediate his holy presence so that they are not consumed. To enable these sinful swindlers to walk into his presence. They need someone to stand in the gap. In the immediate context, they get a mediator, they get Moses. It's Moses, and he goes, what does he do? He goes back and forth, up and down, three times in Exodus 19. Multiple times throughout Exodus 19 to chapter 24, he's going to go up and down. This is no spring chicken here. He's 80 plus. He's running up and down the mountain constantly between God and Israel. He's going back and forth, back and forth. It says Moses went up and he came back down. He went up and he came back down. He goes up and down and up and down. He's going back and forth between the people and God, I want you to pay close attention though. Don't miss what his primary role is according to this text. It's unique and it's distinct and we can't miss it. In this text, based on the language, Moses' primary job is to warn the people. It's to keep the two at a distance Exodus 19, 21 and 22, God says to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through and perish, lest the Lord break out against them. Essentially, Moses stands between an infinitely holy God and sinful Israel with his hands outstretched saying, stop, come no further. 
Essentially, Moses is standing between the two with his arms outstretched saying, Stop, don't come any further. If you come any further, you will die. If you come any further, you will be crushed. If you come any further, you'll be destroyed. His holiness is that holy. Your sinfulness is that sinful. He is that bright and you are that dark and you cannot stand in his presence. Moses stands with his arms outstretched, keeping them at a distance. It's unbelievable. If we stop there in this text, then we'll be depressed. If we stop there in this text, then we'll be discouraged. If we stop there in this text, it'll be just like every other world religion. that you can come, God wants a relationship with you, but you can't get there. There's no answer. There's no hope. If we stop here, we'll be left longing for more. It'll be like the movie ended, but there's no conclusion. This isn't an intimate union and relationship. I thought he desired an intimate union, an intimate relationship. If we stop there in the text, we'll see that this is reconciliation and relationship, but it's proximity. It's not intimate union. It seems incomplete. It's progress, but it's not completion. God has come down, but he's only come so far, and the people can only come up so far as well. Isn't there more? And that's why we can't stop here. We have to see that this is one point on God's redemptive history of salvation and that this text is anticipating the one who will come all the way down and come all the way in to dwell. And that's what our third point is. The the Bible doesn't stop here. This is not the end of the story. This This is a point on the story. The story continues, and we're only at one point in God's story of redemption. And we're seeing this type, this picture of a mediator that stands with his arms outstretched, keeping the people at bay, keeping the people from God, and keeping his holiness from breaking out against them. What's amazing is this day was so terrifying and so that it caused them to tremble to such a degree that that they begged Moses only to speak to them. We will only listen to you, Moses. We don't want to listen to anyone. We can't listen to God. We'll be crushed by his presence. And so later in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 16, Moses recounts this. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is to him you shall listen and why just as you desired of the lord your god at horeb which is mount sinai on the day of the assembly when you said let me not hear again the voice of the lord my god or see this great fire anymore lest i die moses is reminding them remember how you pleaded you cried Take the fire and the fury away. Take the terror away. We need someone to stand in the gap. Moses is telling them in Deuteronomy 18, one is coming to stand in the gap. There is one who is coming who will take away the terror, who will take away the fire, who will take away the fury, who will bear it on himself so that you can enter into his glory and into his presence. In the New Testament, we see that God doesn't come to a mediator. He comes as a mediator. He comes in the person and the work of Jesus. God doesn't come in a thick cloud. He comes in the clear face of Jesus. 
God doesn't come so man only hears when he speaks to his mediator. He comes speaking face to face as the mediator so that we believe him forever. And in the New Testament, we see that Jesus came to take away the terror, the fire, and the fury to bear God's holiness and enable us who are sinful to walk in. This is the most amazing thing where Moses stood with arms outstretched, keeping the people at bay, saying, come no further. Jesus stands with arms outstretched saying, come home. Welcome home. Come in. Come into the presence of God. Come into his mountainous glory. Come into his presence and his holiness. I'm the only way that you can come in. He stands not with arms outstretched keeping us at bay. He stands with arms outstretched welcoming us home. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Thank you. It's so beautiful and wonderful and amazing. You can say yes and great and awesome, whatever you want to say. It's amazing. This is what Jesus does for us. He allows sinful, impure, imperfect swindlers, unfaithful, inconsistent Jacobs like you and me to enter into the presence of an infinitely holy God. Let's think about this for a second. Let's meditate on this. Let's understand what Jesus enables. Through Jesus, we can go beyond the limits. There were limits on the mountain. They can only come up so far. But in Jesus, we can cross the limits into the presence of God. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 2 say, Therefore, since we have been justified or made right, we have righteousness by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 2, Through Him we have also obtained access access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's through Jesus we have access to God. We can cross the limits. We can go beyond them, but the scriptures go further. We cannot, not only do we get to cross the limits, we get to go, the scriptures tell us, boldly and confidently beyond the limits we get to go into his presence without fear or reservation. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. One says that we get to walk into his presence boldly. The other says we get to walk into it confidently. That doesn't mean brazenly. That doesn't mean we get to march up in the, into God's house and God's presence and say, now, give me. No, it means we get to enter his presence without fear without reservation. That means we get to walk into the infinite, holy, terrifying fury and fire of thunder and lightning and we have no fear of being crushed by it, destroyed by it. Why? Because of the work of Jesus. Because of Him. We don't have to stand far off as the text tells us in chapter 20 about Israel. We don't have to beg for someone else to stand in the gap. Jesus has offered voluntarily to stand in the gap on our behalf. We get to go all the way into God's presence. But there's another thing that comes out of this text. It's, most, it's, it's amazing. It's through Jesus we get all of God. Through Jesus we get all of God. 
we don't just get his presence. We get his face. It's the thing we were created for. It's the thing that all of us are longing for. It's what you're looking for in all the transcendent pleasures and treasures and toys of this world. It's what the world is looking for. In Jesus, we get all of God. This is what John is just mesmerized by, blown away by, floored by in 1 John chapter 3. He says, what kind of love is this? What kind of extraordinary love is this that we get to be called children of the Most High God? How? Who, how this is mind-boggling. I get to enter into his presence. I get to call him father. I get to call him daddy. I get all of him. Not just his presence. I get his face. John chapter 1. We've talked about this verse a number of different times. Verse 11 and 13. Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own rejected him. But to those who receive and believe, he gives the right or privilege to be called the children of God. We've talked about this so many times. You realize what children get of their earthly fathers. They get their face. They get their chest. They get the crook of the neck access. That's what we get because of Jesus with God. We are called sons and daughters. We are scooped up in his arms, scooped up in his love, brought near to his chest. He carries us next to his chest, next to his heart, crook of the neck access because of Jesus, because of his work. This is extraordinary. He came from the mountaintop of glory and descended to the valley of our sinful lives and why to enable us to have full access face-to-face -face access with God he takes away the terror he takes away the fury he takes away the fire and that leads us to another mountaintop in the New Testament and it's an extraordinary story with a radically different ending in Matthew chapter 17 Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he walks up a mountain just outside of Galilee. And there on that mountain, in, in chapter 17, verse 2, we're told he was transfigured before them. He was transformed before them. And what happens? His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light, dazzling bright light. He is transformed and transfigured in front of him. They're seeing Jesus for who he really is, all of his glory, all of his transcendent beauty, all of it. And notice, if you look in chapter 17, Peter and James and John, they don't fall down prostrate. They don't run away in, in terror and in fear. In fact, Peter says to Jesus, excuse me, Jesus, if I could just interrupt you for a moment. I know you're talking to Moses, who represents the law. I know you're talking to Elijah, who represents the prophets. I'm seeing that this is a pretty significant moment. Can I build you a tent? Can I build them a tent? Can we camp out here for a little while? Peter, James, and John want to camp out in this transcendent beauty and moment, this unbelievable thing, before Peter can finish his sentence. In verse 5, 
Listen to what happens. While he's still speaking, behold, a bright cloud, not a thick, dark cloud, but a bright cloud, overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. When they saw Jesus, they wanted to draw closer. When they heard the voice of God, they fell prostrate and were terrified. We have to, this raises so many questions. How can they even dare dream of setting up tents in this moment? How can they even dare dream of setting up camp permanently in this place? How can they even dare lie prostrate at the top of this mountain when they hear the voice of God? How is it possible that they're not consumed and crushed and, and, and destroyed in this moment? Only because of the mediating work of Jesus. Matthew chapter 17, verse 7. But Jesus came and touched them. <laughs> Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. The word for touch in this context, it can mean touch, put your arm, hand on an arm. It can also mean embrace. Jesus came and embraced them and, and removed all fear, removed all terror and all of the fury and all of the holy wrath of God. But the scriptures go even further than that. We can go beyond the limits we can go boldly and confidently beyond the limits. We get all of the face of God, the presence of God, but the scriptures go even further than that because of the work of Jesus. Everything we've talked about in Exodus 19, everything we just read or looked at in Matthew 17, all that the disciples got, it's all external access. They got to see Jesus in this moment. They got to hear the presence of God in this moment. It's all external access, but the scriptures go even further. We get something that they didn't even get in this moment. We get in this moment because of the work of Jesus. Better than standing in his presence, we get God come to dwell in us. The infinite, holy, terrifying, mountaintop, glory God, because of Jesus, comes in to take up residence within us. Better than standing in God's presence is God taking up residence within us. Through Jesus, the presence of the living, earth-shaking God comes to dwell. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul recounts and says, In him, speaking of Jesus, in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells. And then Paul goes on in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, he repeats the same thing and then he adds verse 10. And you have been filled in him. All of God dwells in Jesus and those who submit to Jesus, all of Jesus comes in to dwell. The Godhead 
the Father, the Son, the Spirit come and take residence, take up residence within us. Jesus says it himself in John 14, 20. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. It's a whole lot of ends, but it's all in you. The Father Jesus is in the Father, and and you are in Jesus, and Jesus is in you. Later, he prays in John chapter 17 and repeats it three different times that he is in us, and we are in him. John 17, 23, I am in them, the disciples, and they are in me. This is unbelievable. And when Paul prays for the church at Ephesus, This is what he prays in in Ephesians 3.19. He prays that the church would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. That all of that power, all of that glory, all of that transcendent power and all of the transcendent beauty of Jesus would come in and take up residence within our hearts, within our lives. Through Jesus, we get not simply face-to-face access with God. He comes in to dwell in Jesus. This is extraordinary. And this is why Paul urges the Corinthian church, to, when, he, when he prays and he, he urges them, 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test in other words if we are in the faith Christ is in us and what's most glorious and most amazing and what many of us are so missing out on is if if Christ is in us then all of that transcendent power all of that transcendent beauty also is pulsating in our lives The same power that God raised Jesus from the dead is the same power in you that resides, dwells in you if you are in Christ Jesus. Does that not change your perspective on fighting temptation? On fighting sin? The same glorious, infinite, holy God who descended in grace to love us and descended in Jesus to take up residence within us, those who are in Christ Jesus. Does that not change how you love your spouse? That same grace is available to you, is the same grace, is the same power, is the same strength by which you extend grace or have the patience to bear with your spouse or to bear with your children. This power, this grace, this glory is now ours in Christ Jesus. In terms of geography, we've looked at Mount Sinai and there we saw this infinite, terrifying glory and power and holiness of God. And then we migrated and we moved to another mountain outside of Galilee and there we saw the transfigured, transformed beauty of Jesus, the glowing, rich, unbelievable grace of Jesus. How is it that this infinite holiness and this infinite grace can melt together so that you and I can have a relationship? We have to go to a third mountain. 
we have to go to a third hill, and it's called Golgotha. And as we climb that hill, and as we see the crowds, we see not a transfigured Jesus, we see a disfigured Jesus. He's not shining bright like the sun. He's he's not radiating his beauty and his light. He's battered, beaten, and bloody. His face is swollen and disfigured from the punches and the slaps. His lips are dry and cracked. His head is dripping with sweat and blood. His body is covered in dirt and mud. His, His back is shredded with whips. His hands and feet are pierced and dripping. What are you witnessing in this moment on that third mountain? You're witnessing... God's holiness, God's fury, breaking out against sin. But in that moment, you're also witnessing his holiness and his fury breaking out, not on you, but on Jesus. You're seeing that he is just and justifier, that he is holy and gracious, that he's pouring out his wrath on Jesus, that in Exodus 19 his restraining grace is unleashed and it's poured out, but it's not poured out on you and I, it's poured out on Jesus. His body was given, his blood was shed for us, and he volunteered for the job, and why? Why? So that the transcendent beauty and the wonderful grace and the loving presence of God could be poured out in us. This is the good news of the gospel. And it raises the question, what are you bringing before this infinite, holy, terrifying God? Are you hoping in How many times you read the Bible this week? Are you hoping in how many times you attend church in your lifetime? Are you presenting before him your righteousness, your holiness? Are you presenting before him all your good deeds? Or are you presenting before him Jesus? Are you confessing before him, I have nothing, I can't cross the limits, I can't go up the mountain, I can't climb it enough, I can't clean up myself enough, I can't perform enough. You are that holy and that I am that sinful. I desperately need you to come down. I need you to transcend the gap. I need you to fill the void. If you don't do it, I have no hope. Oh, thank God I have Jesus. There he is, Jesus. He is my hope. He is my righteousness. He's the one that stands with outstretched arms welcoming me home. He is my hope. Is that your hope this morning? Is Jesus your hope? Is he your confession? That leads us to the table. We're going to celebrate and remember this good news that we've just sung about and we've just learned about. And as we do, we remember throughout the Gospels, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians as well, you have a cup beneath your chairs. 
we want to remember and celebrate this unbelievable good news that we're talking about this morning. On the night before Jesus marched up that hill to be disfigured on our behalf, he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. And he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, represents my body, given for you, laid down for you, sacrificed for you. And then he took the cup. He said, this represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant. We celebrated last week the old covenant. But there's another way. It's the blood of Jesus. The new covenant. This represents my blood of the covenant, the new covenant shed for you. So when we take this, we are confessing that is my only hope. His body and his blood, that is the only thing that bridges the gap between me and God, nothing else. So it's essential for you to understand, we don't take this to gain our way into his favor. We take this to celebrate that his favor has come down in Jesus. If Jesus is not your hope, if you've not taken Jesus, if you've not received Jesus, believed on Jesus, hoped in Jesus, clung to Jesus, then please don't take this. This will do nothing for you. You need Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. And for those of us who have received Jesus, what we're doing in this moment is rehearsing, remembering, and confessing yet again that he is our only hope that his body and his blood. If you've not received Jesus, today's the day. You can do that. You can confess, I am a sinner, I'm a Jacob, I'm a swindler, and I cannot bridge the gap. And I need a Savior to do that for me. And I see it is clearly Jesus and nothing but Jesus. No one else, nothing else will do. He is better than all other ways that I might try to bring if you've not taken Jesus, then by all means take him before you take this. If you've taken Jesus, then take and drink. And remember his blood poured out for you. If you've taken Jesus, then take and eat. And remember his body disfigured for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. It's so beautiful, so amazing. It testifies in and of itself that you want us, desire a relationship with us. We could never in a million years say that you don't care and don't want us. You tell us and every page is dripping with your grace. Lord, this text this morning is so beautiful and so amazing because it, it forces us to deal with our sin, the gap, the division, the gulf between us and you and to really examine our hope and what we're hoping in to bridge that gap. Lord, may it not be our works, may it not be our self-effort, may it not be our strength, our might, our wisdom. May it be only Jesus, Jesus and only Jesus. And Lord, may we celebrate that he shed his blood and gave his body for us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.